0: Welcome to Find Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Hi, Joe.
1: Hi, friends.
2: Good to see you again.
0: And Andy Leonetti.
2: Hey, guys. I would say it is good to see you again, but I usually don't like coming back to work after a four-day four weekend, so...
0: Yes, we are back from Thanksgiving break, and we're ready to, to get into some... Pretty serious topics today. Two high-profile criminal trials came to a close in the last couple of weeks. First, a jury in Wisconsin found Kyle Rittenhouse, who last year at 17 years old shot three people at a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, killing two and injuring one, and he was found not guilty on all charges on November 19th. Meanwhile, a jury in Georgia convicted George McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan on 23 criminal charges related to the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in February of 2020. In both cases, the defendants claim they were justified in their actions legally. Uh, Rittenhouse entered a plea of self-defense while Brian and the McMichaels claimed they pursued Arbery because they thought he was a burglar, essentially defense of property. So today we're talking about the basics of self-defense and how they played out in these cases, as well as a little bit of how it plays out historically.
2: I managed to avoid any uh, raucous Thanksgiving conversations, <laughs> um, you never know who the wild card in a family is that's going to, you know,
0: yeah. get the dinner
2: table humming.
0: Yeah. I actually, I, I got pulled into a discussion of the Rittenhouse case um, almost right after it happened at a sort of Friendsgiving type of thing. And I I had barely made it in the door before <laughs> um, <laughs> my other lawyer friend in the Just group. couldn't wait. <laughs> Asked me, asked me what my opinion was on it. And, and yeah, I'm sitting there like, dude, can I get a beer first? like <laughs> I'm going to try not to get too much on my soapbox about this case, but I, I will say up front that it's one of those situations where as a lawyer, I fully understand why things shook out in a certain way, but that doesn't mean that I am happy about the situation or that I think it should have come to this, I guess.
1: Yeah, and we'll express some personal opinions, but we are definitely going to go through the facts of the case, and we're going to kind of take it step by step. So if anybody disagrees with us, that's fine. You'll still have all of the information that you need to make your own opinions on it.
0: Let's start with the basics of self-defense. So in both civil and criminal law, we have this concept of affirmative defenses, where a defendant essentially says, yes, I did the thing, but I can't be legally held accountable because of X. And I'll try not to get too much into the weeds about it, because in, in law school, obviously, we definitely got into the weeds on this, where you start comparing the ideas of necessity versus justification. And so I guess the the short version is something like self-defense is a justification where the system says not only are you not legally responsible, but you actually had the right to do what you did. And that's why we often hear it called the right of self-defense, even though it's technically an affirmative defense, but that's where some of that terminology comes from. So when someone claims self-defense in a criminal case, that means that it's on the prosecution to do two things. First, they have to prove the elements of the crime. Second, they have to disprove the defendant's affirmative defense. And the extra fun part is every state has their own version of self-defense. I'm going to go through the model penal code version, which we've we've talked about the model penal code before. It's sort of the big nationwide guidelines um, for different criminal statutes. And so states take whatever bits and pieces of the model penal code that they want, and they incorporate them however they choose. If you're taking criminal law in law school and you've got a final coming up, the model penal code is probably what you'll be using, so you can pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> If you're listening to me to help you study, I'm very flattered. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the in the model penal code, specifically section 3.04 it states that the use of force upon or toward another person is justifiable when the actor believes that such force is immediately necessary for the purpose of protecting himself against the use of unlawful force by such an other person on the present occasion god this is why people hate us
1: <laughs> <laughs> there is a simpler way to put it yes like, yeah yeah
0: this is why there are it's so true. many jokes about lawyers and why people can't stand us so all of that to say in general self-defense breaks down to two things you've got Got imminence and reasonableness. And over the years, we've also developed standards for what we usually refer to as proportionality, which is essentially the idea that you can't bring a gun to a knife fight. The way that you respond in a situation, if you're going to claim self-defense, has to be proportional to the amount of force that you are being met with. On top of that, there are additional rules when it comes to the use of deadly force and... Again, if it's coming up on your final, it's section 3.042B. Write it down, kids. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why this became Laura's, like, study corner, but, um, you know, I didn't have anybody to do it for me, so I'm trying to help you out. Yeah. And again, this is the model penal code so it's in general states have their own versions but deadly force is not justified under the law unless a person believes it is necessary to protect themselves against death serious injury kidnapping or rape and furthermore you can't use deadly force if you're if you provoked the use of force to begin with you'll often hear this referred to as the initial aggressor rule and under the model rules anyway and we'll get into some of the specifics the state specifics later on this, but under the model rules, you have what we call a duty to retreat, where essentially if you have the choice to either retreat to safety or use deadly force, you have to retreat. However, the duty to retreat doesn't apply to your home or place of work. And like I said, different states have different approaches to this. You've got stand your ground jurisdictions and all that fun stuff. And finally, in general, a person can't use deadly force to defend property, only themselves or another person. And we'll see how that kind of played out in the Ahmad Arbery case.
1: That was a fantastic summary.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I worked really hard on it.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> Seriously. No, that was fantastic. That, yeah. You know, I, I think everything that you said was important. What it comes down to is that there is a certain amount of common sense to self-defense, right? If you're going out looking for trouble, you can't go and claim self-defense and just say, hey, you know, that's what I believed. to prove it otherwise. There's... The, all these rules and, and model rules are intended to prevent people from using self-defense as a way of getting away with homicide, essentially.
0: Yeah, and and there are a couple of pretty famous cases. And again, Andy, I'm going to apologize for uh, getting into sort of law, law school type stuff.
2: Are we going back to colonial times again? Well, I'm not going that
0: far back. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh one is one is from 1989 and one is from 1962. So for one, the first I wanted to bring up is goes to the imminence issue and it's um, State of North Carolina versus Norman. This is from 1989. A lot of people just refer to it as the Judy Norman case. So Judy Norman, the defendant in this case, was convicted of murder after she shot her husband while he was sleeping and there was a long history of physical abuse. In this situation, just, I mean, things that are kind of the stuff of nightmares. I mean, this this man forced her into sex work on several occasions, made her eat dog food and like bark like a dog, like very, very abusive and demeaning situation. And he also threatened to kill her. But in that case, the state Supreme Court found that at the time she shot him, she did not face imminent bodily harm and therefore couldn't use self-defense. And specifically, they said the defendant was not faced with an instantaneous choice between killing her husband or being killed. So that's something important to keep in mind when we're talking about self-defense is that the situation has to be such that your choice is very much in the moment. It's very like second to second someone has to make a split second decision whether they're going to use especially deadly force. It's one of those cases that I I do remember reading it and it is it's it's hard to read because it, you you feel for the person and you understand mm-hmm. yeah. kind of why they did what they did but at the same time under the law, it just it failed to meet that standard.
1: Just because he deserved it doesn't mean that you can actually do it. Right.
0: Yeah,
2: we're living in a society. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it always comes back to Seinfeld every time. The other case I wanted to bring up is for the reasonableness piece of this, where we have the the most famous case that I think Andy you've probably heard of too. It's called People versus Getz from 1962, also known as the Subway Vigilante Case.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah.
0: This, yeah, this was one where. So, what, what happened in here, in this case, Bernard gets shot and wounded four teenagers on a New York subway because he believed they were trying to rob him. And the underlying facts, basically, is that one of these teenagers approached him and said, hey, give me $5. And his response was to stand up and fire four shots from a 38 he had in his pocket illegally, but that's neither here nor there. And in this case, the court had to decide if the reasonableness standard should be based on what an objectively reasonable person would do or a subjective standard based on the defendant's state of mind. And they concluded that to justifiably use deadly force, the reasonable belief of imminent harm has to be based on what a reasonable person would do in those circumstances.
2: And Bernie Goetz wasn't reasonable?
0: No, they, they <laughs> concluded that he wasn't. But And, and I'll, I'll use an example. I know in a previous episode, I used an example where Andy attacked me. So this time I'll attack you,
2: Andy. <laughs> oh, no, okay.
0: <laughs> so... Let's say, and and so, yeah, it it all comes down to the specific circumstances that you're faced with. So if I attack Andy, there's a lot of things that are going to come into play as to what kind of force Andy can use to fight me off.
2: I'd activate my bulletproof armor.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh, okay. I didn't realize we were playing by Star Trek rules. (laughs) Yeah. What I was, oh God, where was I going with that? Oh yeah. So the reasonableness standard is going to be different based on who I am and what kind of situation we're in. So obviously this is a audio medium, so none of you listeners know what I look like. But to I guess kind of set it up. I am taller than the average woman. I'm about five nine and do weightlifting more than occasionally. So the the amount of force that Andy could reasonably use to fight me would be different in that in in reality than say if I was four foot eleven and I don't know also anemic or something.
1: And the takeaway is, don't mess with Laura, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: I didn't mean for that to be my conclusion, but um
2: We have found that out before
0: there's a reason why I'm not afraid to walk my dog at night. I'm a I'm a formidable looking person and I have a, a half pit bull, so you know, no nobody's screwing with us. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully Andy wouldn't either. I wouldn't attack you to begin with, but you
2: know. That's much appreciated. <laughs> um no, Bernie Gets is legit. We were talking about this before the show. It's like one of those kind of like a dirtier New York time, you know, that people like to mythologize, people like to romanticize and mythologize like New York City of the 60s through the 90s. And like Bernie Gets is like kind of a folk hero to some pieces. It kind of inspired like a scene in the Joker movie as well, mm-hmm. um, where he was clearly in the wrong, um, yeah. but people still like pumped their fists Anyway, yeah. in that movie, mm-hmm. man, nothing reasonable about Bernie Getz. I guess that's my hot, t- that's my <laughs> hot take of this episode.
0: Yeah, the uh, the court agrees with you. So I guess you're, you're in the right on this one. So I guess, yeah, now that we kind of have our, our foundation set up, let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the Kyle Rittenhouse case.
2: Yeah, I wrote a blog on Fine Law's Courtside blog uh, for... Some of those legal curious out there, some of the lawyers may think that it's woefully uh, undercooked, but, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I don't care. Um, (laughs) That was an unneeded disclaimer.
0: Go check it out, folks.
1: It's a well-written blog.
0: (laughs) we're all good at our jobs
2: (laughs) from my perspective as i was following the case and more specifically following the trial it really there really did seem to be a conventional wisdom building amongst the lawyer class not just the criminal defense lawyer class but but other attorneys as well that it was pretty much inevitable that rittenhouse was going to be acquitted but then As the trial unfolded, it seemed that the really pivotal moment kind of came when he testified in his own defense, which a lot of times does not happen in high-profile murder cases. But in a self-defense case such as this, you really do kind of want to hear from the person. And what a lot of attorneys were saying was that Rittenhouse was able to effectively establish his state of mind. At the time, which was the way he walked through, he walked people through what unfolded was that he had been spotted by protesters or rioters or whatever you want to call them, Antifa. I don't, I, I honestly don't know, but that Rittenhouse heard a gunshot behind him, fired by uh, Joshua Zeminski, who is facing charges related to that night. And then that's when Rittenhouse turned and saw Jason Rosenbaum coming at him with his arms out. And Rittenhouse said that he saw Rosenbaum throw something at him. Turned out to be a plastic bag. Um, But then Rosenbaum had his hand on the barrel of his gun. He then shot Rosenbaum four times, then turned and ran down the street, he said, but then he was being chased by people. He fell to the ground. It's then where he encountered... Uh, Anthony Huber, who struck him in the head, who struck Rittenhouse in the head with a skateboard, and grabbed at his gun. Uh, Rittenhouse then shot him once in the chest, and and Huber died as well. And then finally, Gage Grosskreutz came on the scene, and he was armed. He's a paramedic. He was a paramedic, and he was armed. And he pulled a gun. He pulled. He brandished his pistol at Rittenhouse, and it's then when Rittenhouse then shot him. And one of the big one of the big moments besides Rittenhouse's testimony was that some of the witnesses that the, pro- that the prosecution called essentially undermined their own case, which was one of those which was that Gage Grosskreutz said in his testimony that it wasn't until he advanced on Rittenhouse with his gun that Rittenhouse fired his gun.
0: Yeah, he kind of inadvertently became a defense witness at that point.
2: Yeah, and then there was a state witness who was also armed and out in Kenosha that night had described Rosenbaum as acting, quote, belligerently and, quote, asking to be shot. Other people had described him as erratic as well. He was on medication for bipolar disorder, but beyond that, we can't really talk about his state of mind, obviously. Mm -hmm. Some people had described him as not a serious threat, but during Rittenhouse's testimony, basically described him as a threat to him. He said, I remember his hand on the barrel of my gun.
0: Well, and there was evidence from the medical examiner as well that Rosenbaum had gunpowder on his hands, which indicated that More than likely, he either was holding on to the barrel of the gun or was very close to holding on to the barrel of the gun when he was shot.
2: Yes, and a state's witness who was there uh, videoing for a website also testified that Rosenbaum had lunged in front of Rittenhouse's rifle.
0: And all of this happened in about, what, seven seconds?
2: Yeah, a lot of this unfolded really quickly after he shot Rosenbaum and then went on the move and was essentially trying to turn himself in. So this is where you can start to make some different arguments about the conduct of police that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where Rittenhouse actually was trying to get to a police line and turn himself in is what he was arguing, but that cops essentially ignored him.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's a whole that's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole other episode.
2: Yep. But what the prosecution was essentially trying to paint Rittenhouse as during this entire trial was someone who should you know because he lived in he lived in Illinois he lived south of the state line even though his dad was from was from Kenosha. Mm -hmm. Um, He showed up, got a gun from a friend, and he was out there looking for trouble, Mm -hmm. essentially. But here's also a sort of some legal minutia that if if you aren't in the biz, you might appreciate, was what uh, Rittenhouse's legal defense team had said was they had conducted some mock trials in the lead up to this. And what they found was that when Rittenhouse testified they got a much better response than if he had kept quiet and kind of let the prosecution paint him as this person. Um, But what they were able to do was put forward this view that he was not this active shooter walking around indiscriminately firing his gun. He said under oath that he was there to protect his community and he had a Uh, he had medical supplies on him and that he only shot when he felt he needed to to defend his life.
1: Yeah, and that that's why all of the points that you are going over now Andy are were so key to the trial because when gage testified that he walked forward that shows an imminent threat so that's mm-hmm. why that's important we can get into it a little bit later but Wisconsin doesn't necessarily have a duty to retreat it sort of does but that goes into Rittenhouse claim that Rosenbaum had threatened his life twice which kind of shows that mm-hmm. it was a credible threat and grabbing at the gun is important because if Rosenbaum Rosenbaum, you know, threw a punch and then Rittenhouse could have taken a step back and said, hey, back off, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that does then and at that point it shot him. Then it's a whole different case than if Rosenbaum goes for the gun, at which case he can reasonably fear for his life. So all of these details go toward the imminence and the reasonableness of Rittenhouse's response.
2: Yeah, it was that every time he fired the gun, it was because he felt like his Life was in danger because then after he after he shot Rosenbaum, he was essentially being chased by a mob. I mean not to question the motives of people who are wanting to in the moment people are freaked out and they're probably trying to keep an eye on this 17 year old with a very power with a very powerful gun and they were following him through the streets. but to his mind then when he falls to the ground and someone swings a skateboard at his head, he is also then concerned that this mob is gonna tear him to pieces. I have a lot of quotes here from attorneys in the news about why this verdict was not surprising, but there was just one that I really liked. It was from Laura Uretzian, who has defended clients such as Michael Jackson and Scott Peterson. She said, if you've got them convinced of self-defense, if you've got them, meaning the jury, if you've got them to believe that everything he did was to defend his life and his life was at risk, that if he wouldn't have shot those men, he'd be dead himself. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't matter that he was out there. Yeah. That he was from Illinois. That-
0: <laughs> right. It's 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 like I was kind of alluding to earlier. And I, I have no problem saying that Kyle Rittenhouse made bad decisions. And yes, those decisions absolutely. resulted in the deaths of two people. In my opinion, he shouldn't have been there, nor should he have been carrying a gun that he was not legally allowed to purchase. However, Yeah. Like you say, I I was not surprised at all by this verdict because given the specific circumstances he was in, he was legally permitted to defend himself.
1: And I know this isn't a gun episode. We've already covered the gun episodes, but I do want to quick cover why he was it was not illegal for him to have the gun. So he did not cross state lines with a gun. I think some initial reporting kind of got the details a little bit confused. According to him, he picked up the gun from a friend mm-hmm. who bought it for him, who was legally able to purchase it with the understanding, according to you know the friend, that he wasn't going to use it until he was 18. Um, that that individual, by the way, is facing a gun charge um, because you can't ghost purchase weapons for minors. Uh, but it But because of a quirk in Wisconsin law, while miners cannot purchase the type of gun that he was carrying at the time, they can in fact possess it, which is why you're hearing some mutterings about the state of our current laws. Because while it was legal for him to have the gun, it's a little strange that you can't purchase that kind of a weapon, but you can openly carry it on the streets. So there's a little bit of an exception swallowing the rule.
2: Trying to read the law around the guns was a lot of like consult this law, read here, and then you go to the other law for an exception, and then another exception somewhere else. And yeah, basically if it was if he had a a pistol or a sawed off rifle or shotgun, he wouldn't have been allowed to possess as a 17 year old. Yeah, but this is essentially to allow kids to hunt mm-hmm. with a long gun.
1: Yeah, if you can make any sense of the legislature's intent through these laws, it's probably (laughs) just trying to let kids go hunting with their family yeah the way it's written makes it so that it's basically legal for minors to carry almost all types of firearms except for those specific exceptions the other thing that i wanted to bring up with regard to the particularities of wisconsin law is that i and i mentioned this before there is not a duty to retreat but it's not necessarily a stand your ground law what wisconsin law is is that in determining whether a defendant reasonably believed that the amount of force used was necessary to prevent or terminate the interference, the jury can consider whether the defendant had the opportunity to retreat with safety. There is no duty to retreat, which means it's sort of a standard ground law, but it's also perfectly okay for the judge to instruct the jury to consider that as kind of the overall reasonableness of the conduct. And in this case, that was a little bit of an issue with the Rittenhouse case.
2: Yeah, someone had called me out on the uh, Find Law Facebook page for uh, not noting in the blog post that Rittenhouse retreated, which he did, which he he did, um, but just that the law was he was under no he was under no real obligation to
1: but i mean if you're in that situation it would be better again we don't provide legal advice but <laughs> if there's any way to extricate yourself from a situation that involves deadly force do so immediately because no matter what happens it's always better to try to get away
0: if andy sees me in a dark alley he should probably just run
2: yeah <laughs> i will i will turn And I will sprint like an (laughs) Olympian. I will be faster than Usain Bolt trying to get away from you. (laughs) So then what about the Arbery case then? Because what made the conventional wisdom and perception of that case seem so open and shut from the opposite direction where the verdict also surpri- kind of really surprised no one.
0: To me, I think the, the biggest thing is that, like I said earlier, self-defense, when it comes to defending property, does not include deadly force. Even even if he had been a robber, which I feel like I can safely say he pretty obviously wasn't, the the people who, who killed Ahmaud Arbery still wouldn't have been legally justified in chasing him down and shooting him.
1: Yeah, so maybe we should go over the facts real quick, just in case. That took place in Georgia. Three men saw a jogger, who is black, running through their neighborhood. And for some reason, who
2: knows why? Who can say?
1: Thought that he was a burglar. And so they did. uh, They got in their vehicles and brought guns and uh, ended up basically confronting him over this. I don't know the exact details that the defendants claimed or, or that they alleged, but basically what they tried to say was that we wanted to make a citizen's arrest and it went haywire and he and, and Arbery ended
2: up dead because of it.
1: So I think probably right off the bat, some of the distinctions are pretty clear
2: yeah. between this case and Rittenhouse's case. But Travis McMichael had argued, Travis McMichael was the one who actually pulled the trigger. So all three men were found guilty of felony murder, we should point out. But Travis McMichael was actually also convicted of malice murder, meaning that he intended to kill Ahmad Arbery. But he had testified that he feared... That in the kind of once they had pinned him with their two cars, they had kind of trapped him that once a kind of scuffle ensued or that he feared that Arbery was going to get control of the gun. And so that's why he shot him three times with a shotgun. But there was a vid- there was video of the incident, and once the defendant's lawyers released that video, the worm turned pretty harshly because I, for some reason, they all thought that that was going to help their case, and it and it seemed to do the exact
0: opposite. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a, a separate issue from the self defense thing, but it, it's, it's sort of a whole nother problem that this case didn't get a lot of attention until that video was released. But yeah, I, I don't know why they thought that that was going to help their case. That you know this this person is out jogging empty handed, and for some reason having having it on video that they were going to yeah. corner him. And I just I, yeah, I don't I don't really understand where their head was at. On the that basic
2: one. and so the basic argument is that they started all of this. Right. And then so you don't get to then claim self-defense.
0: It's that initial aggressor thing.
2: Okay. And then as as with
1: Wisconsin's gun laws, Georgia has had some interesting citizens arrest laws on the books, basically since the Civil War. But at, uh, to their credit, to the Georgia legislature's credit, they did repeal the law and, and they refined it. Uh, Wisconsin has yet to say, like, no, we meant kids with you know, going hunting, not kids with semi-automatic rifles. But Georgia has clarified that a citizen's arrest is mostly intended for stores and shopkeepers who, you know, have video evidence that somebody just is trying to steal something from their store and they say, OK, just wait here 10 minutes. We've already called the police. You know, we have your license plate. It's mm-hmm. OK. Just yeah. you know, let's deal with this. Um, it's it's not meant for citizens to go around pretending to be police officers.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a huge difference between holding someone at a location versus yeah, shooting them in the street.
1: To me, it, it's a pretty open and shut case. I, I think the consensus is the opposite because it's a pretty uphill battle to say I decided based on the look of somebody that they Mm -hmm. were stealing from us. And I tracked them down and I brought my gun, even though there was no evidence that the person had a weapon that I was following. It it goes back to the reasonableness and the imminence. There was no indication that they were acting particularly reasonably or that there was any imminent threat to themselves. Along with the proportionality doctrine that you talked about, Laura, we value as a society, we value human life more than we value property. So you can't go around killing people to save a TV. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how much you love watching TV. Yep. <laughs>
0: that sounds
2: like a good close.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> I think that's it. That's a, that's a wrap on that episode. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at com. put hold music in that'd be
1: funny
0: <laughs> some like jazzy elevator music